Hi, my name is Martin Purnell and welcome to Off Grid Christianity, a weekly podcast for those who go to church or don't go to church or are just disillusioned. On today's Off Grid Christianity is a gentleman who hails from Northern Ireland. A very well-known singer-songwriter, he's authored a book called Rock and Roll Worship Leading and also lived for a few years in North Carolina, USA, where he saw the power of prayer. Why write a book, though, about worshipping? Why move to North Carolina? What did he see from prayer? we better find out, especially as he's eating his sandwiches at the moment. It gives me great pleasure to welcome to Off Greek Christianity, Brian Houston. Hi, Brian. Thanks for joining us today. First question, what sandwiches are you eating? Well, I've just finished my sandwich, actually, but it's um, the same thing I have every day. One slice of bacon, two eggs, and in a brioche bap, uh, or I don't think English people call it a bap. What do you call yeah, it? Yeah, they call them baps, yeah. All right, okay. Yeah. So like a burger, a burger bun, yeah, I suppose. Yeah. And uh, so I have that every day about one o'clock-ish, a um, little early today because we're chatting. <laughs> but um, yeah, so yeah, that's what I have. That's okay. And any sauce that go with it? No, no, no sauce, no butter, no nothing. There's, It's a good way to just have a healthy, healthy-ish yeah. um, snack that yeah. sets up for the day. Well, that links in very nicely to the first question. And um, by the way, if you want to get hold of us at all, you're more than welcome to at um, Off Grid Christianity at accessradio.biz. That's O-G-C at accessradio.biz, biz spelt B-I-Z. So, Tony sandwiches, let's go for the first question. If you could invite anybody from history for an evening meal, Brian, alive or dead, so you could ask <laughs> them questions, who would it be? Wow. I would have to, well. My, the first person in my head was Napoleon, but I don't think that would be a fun night. Well, someone um, else chose Napoleon, so you're more than welcome to go for him if you want. No, I mean I'd rather talk to Elvis. To be honest, would it not be a much better conversation chatting with Elvis or someone like that? Yeah, I think. You might. I mean, I'd love to know. You see, Elvis wanted to be a gospel singer. Yeah. Have you seen that movie Walk the Line with the story of Johnny Cash? I have got it on DVD as well. It's cracking. And there's that scene in that movie where um, Johnny Cash is singing uh, Drifting Too Far From The Shore, an old gospel song, and um, Sam Phillips said to him, you know, this doesn't sell. And I've never heard it said about Elvis, but I would imagine that that's a conversation Sam Phillips must have had with Elvis as well because he was so into gospel stuff, you know. and yet I was I wonder if he had I mean he auditioned to be the lead singer of the Blackwood Brothers and he was turned down. And I wonder if he had actually been accepted. Would he still be alive today? You know what I mean? And yeah, would very rock, true. Will not have changed the world, you know, who knows? Yeah. Yeah, good good answer. So you're gonna go for Elvis then? Yeah. Good answer. Question two. Who is your favorite biblical character? or favourite biblical story, or favourite parable? Um, my favourite story is this, I think it's Elisha, uh-huh. says to the woman, and the woman comes to him and said, I've only got so much oil left, I'm going to make, he said to her, make me, make me my dinner or whatever, and she's like, I've only got so much oil left, the debt collectors are after me, I'm going to feed my sons and die, I think she says. And he says, go home and pour your oil 
get some jars and pour your oil into jars. And um, so she does that and the oil keeps flowing. Yes. And her son's running around getting jars for her and until there are no more jars and then the oil stops flowing. And I love that story because I think that's very much a lesson in life. I think that's what happens in life, if you know what I mean. Yeah. We used to play a band in the 1990s uh, called Jars of Clay. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that's where they got the uh, the idea for the name from. Who knows? There you go. Thank you. Good, uh, Good answer, that one. Question four, outside of family events, what has been your most enjoyable day out so far? Uh, most enjoyable day out. Um, uh, probably the time I went to Graceland with my wife, mm-hmm. Elvis's house. Yeah, that was wonderful. Wow. We went to Elvis's house, Stack Studios, Sun Studios in Memphis. And that we did that for our anniversary. So wow. that was a good time. Now, yeah. which would, did you prefer, Stax or Sun Studios? Well, Stax is a rebuild. Oh, is um, it? Yes, they knocked it down and then someone's built something that's the same size as it. So it's not in any way um, the original place. Yeah. And, and a fantastic place to go, actually, is Motown Records in Detroit. Mm-hmm. You should go there, Motown Studios. It's the best. Well, then it was $12, and God, goodness knows much it is now probably fifty dollars that was 2014 or 15 i think we went there and um we parked you park in the hood you know um and the the guide was just wonderful and and it's just an incredible experience but so memphis going to memphis doing that elvis's house was probably the best the second best would be motown records in in detroit you know highly recommended wow Thank you. Well, yeah, thank you. Uh, well, last question then. <laughs> Fingers on the buzzers. What has been your most embarrassing moment to date, please, Brian? Oh, <laughs> my most embarrassing moment of my entire life. And the one that always comes to mind is I was making a record in Liverpool and we had made one record already there and used um, Par Street Studios, which Coldplay had used. All right. And the second time, the second record we were making or trying to make there, which did, ended up being made over here, but we started it there, um, was Motor Museum Studios, which was owned by Andy McCluskey of a band called, called The Motors. And no. Uh, no, sorry, not Andy, because sorry, sorry, I was, oh, oh, orchestral maneuvers in dark. Yeah, there you yeah. go. Yeah. So we got there. We so, did yeah. a few. So we had rented, <clears throat> rented this studio for Andy McCluskey and I was on the road and I was going to, you know, I was doing some gigs in England and then I was, I was taking a week staying at my auntie's in Liverpool and taking a week to make the record and then carrying on on the road. And, and when you're on the road, you're kind of, you know, you're kind of a bit tired yeah. and a bit, you're kind of working on autopilot. And, and I'm inclined in order to manage the task I'm inclined to deal with everything as each day comes around. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I don't think too far ahead past what what am I doing today and tomorrow. That's kind of it. And um, so I was arriving in Liverpool on the train thinking to myself, I wonder how I'm going to get to the studio. wonder where the taxi rank is, you know. And I got off the train and I'm walking down the platform and up ahead I see Andy McCluskey, who owns Motor Museum Studios. 
And the thought, being Irish, the thought runs through my head, oh, how nice. He's come down to pick me up from the train. I wonder how he knew I was arriving on this train. What a nice guy. Well, I'm walking up towards Andy McCluskey, and he's standing, smiling, and I'm smiling back. And I get closer and closer to Andy, and he's still smiling and waving, and I'm waving back. And I get all the way up to him, and I say, as, as I approached him, he's a taller guy than me, as I approached him, I realized I'm still looking into his eyes, but he's no longer looking into my eyes. And so I get up close to him and I go, hi, Andy. And he looks down at me and his face drops. And I, I said, hi, I'm Brian. I'm, I'm renting the studio today. And he's looking at me with this hugely puzzled ex expression. And he goes, oh, yeah, what? And I'm like, uh, I didn't know what to say and I looked over my shoulder and behind me was the other guy from Orchestral Maneuvers in oh, the bar. Right, yeah. And he was there to pick him up and there was this Irish dude standing in front of <laughs> So talk about feeling embarrassed. I wanted the ground to open up and swallow yeah. me. That was awful. That was just the worst. Oh my friend, that was the worst. That was just the worst ever. Yeah. Did he give you lift? To, did he give you lift to the studio? I got a taxi. Yeah, thanks, Andy. Won't <laughs> again. <laughs> I won't ever listen to Enola Gay anymore. Uh, never again. That's it. Enola Gay should have stayed at home yesterday. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> They've written some great tracks there. I must admit, they've written some great songs. Well, thank you for showing that. Um, let's clear some stuff up, if that's right, because you've already alluded to going to America to mm -hmm. North Carolina. Rally, I think it was, wasn't it, in the end? Yeah. Yeah, uh, famous for bicycles, of course. Obviously, in brackets, not. Um, but what were you doing over there? Tell us all about it, please. Um, truthfully, I had... I have a bit of a habit. Um, my habit is that when I can't think... When I, when I hit a brick wall with music in the mainstream... I'm inclined to wonder, is it time for me to do something in the church? Mm. And so I kind of cycled backwards and forwards. Um, I had a, I got a secular career by accident, really. Um, I mean, I was just making music. Mm. I'd made a CD and a guy came to a gig we were doing and he bought the CD and he happened to be a radio guy and he played the CD on the radio and someone called in and said, can you play that again? And then the more they played it, the more people called in and asked for it. And next thing we knew, we we were selling records and I just took records down to Virgin Megastore. This was mid 90s. And you could walk in with a box of records and a carbon copy book and do a sale or return. And the guy would sign for 25 and put my phone number on the carbon copy book and you know, turned out two days later, he called me, said, uh, those 25 CDs are sold. Can you give me another 25? So I come down, give me wow. another 25. A couple of days later, those 25 are gone. And, and next, so then I started to go to other record stores, to Our Price and to HMV and to whatever other stores, independent stores. And each one of them took a little box on sale or return, no risk to them. And 
each every couple of days, someone would phone me and say, we need more CD. And next thing we knew, we'd sold a couple of thousand, maybe 3,000. Wow. Yeah. And it was purely by accident. I mean, it wasn't like there was no plan. That just happened. And um, next thing I was invited on the television, then I was invited to open for Van Morrison, and then I was invited to, you know, this show, Elvis Costello. And all of a sudden, these things began to just spark off one another. Um, But after about three years, two or three years, um, I was starting to wonder where I would go from there. My second record, what an industry term, it's stiffed. (laughs) Nothing happened with that one. And um, and then the pastor showed up from the church one Friday afternoon and said, we'd like you to lead the worship team. And I thought, oh, oh, this is this is what's next. And long story short, that never happened. Um, when word got out that they were going to make me the leader of the worship team, some feathers were ruffled. And really? <laughs> well, I'd only been at the church three years, so four years. So it was um, there was people who had been there for twenty years who were not happy bunnies. Yeah. And, um, so yeah, all this was going on, and um, and so then that didn't work out. And then I made another record in England with a guy called Adrian Lee from Mike and the Mechanics, and and yep. that led me back into the mainstream thing, and. Then he and I made a worship record together because he needed money and I had a guy offering to pay me to make a worship record because he saw he heard my worship songs. Um, again, someone said to me, if I give you money, will you make a worship record of those songs? And yeah, yeah. I said, okay. And I called my producer who was Jewish and, I, and who wanted me to have a secular career and he said, absolutely no way. You shouldn't do this. This is not a record you should make. And... Um, this will wreck your career. And a few months later, he phoned me up and he said, see that record you were thinking of making? I said, yeah. He says, you still have that money? And I said, yeah. Well, I have no work, so why don't we make that record? <laughs> <laughs> so we just made the record. And then next thing I know, someone, not me, someone gave that record. I think the person was Stephen Doherty, mm-hmm. who owned a record store. In Coleraine. Yeah, no, yeah. yeah. And he gave a record to Les Moore from Kingsway. Yeah. And the next thing I knew, someone's calling me saying, can you come over to England? So again, I didn't do anything. That happened, mm. right? And next thing I had a record deal with Kingsway. And next thing I'm booked for these conferences. And to be perfectly honest with you, I had zero desire to be in that world. Really? And Kingsway would give me advances. Um I would use that money to make mainstream records, right? Mm-hmm. And there was all kinds of favor on my life in those days. Um, well, there still is, to be honest. But um, I, the next thing, you know, it was guys from Sonic Flood were producing my records. And yeah, like yeah. The, the three people who produced my record were Jason Halbert, who now works with Kelly Clarkson as her musical director. Oh, really? Yeah. Wasn't, wasn't he originally in DC Talk, Jason Halbert? And then he... Yeah. No, you, Sonic Flood. Sonic Flood. So, yeah, but Sonic Flood. Um, I thought Sonic Flood came out of Zilch, um, which was the backing band for DC Talk. Sorry. <laughs> well, there you, there you go. You would know that. I don't know that. I mean, I don't know these things. Like, because I'm. That's not my thing. That was never an area of music. I was even remotely connected to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's worth so, checking out the only Zilch album. It's stunning. 
anyway, right. sorry. So that whole kind of CCM world, and to a wider degree, the worship world, is not something I've ever had any interest in whatsoever. I was only ever interested in doing mainstream music. And I came from an era when people like Noel Richards and Dave Belbro yeah. and Graham Kendrick, they were worship leaders. Yes. And that's what a worship leader was. There, it wasn't um, rock and roll. Like it wasn't um, like back then it wasn't, you know, Travis or like some of these bands that I was Coldplay. It wasn't any of those bands that's become Coldplay. But back then it wasn't. It was very kind of folky, uh, acoustic bass music and considered very uncool. And But this room I'm sitting in um, was built by a guy called Andy Kidd. And the first album I think recorded in here, the first two or three albums were the Sam's records by Ian White. Yes, well, I played with Ian White, yeah. Great man. Yeah, well, I both played on that record and sang on those records. And yet, wow. for me, this whole world was something that happened outside of my main interest, which was just music. Um, so, yeah, all that stuff happened. And next thing I knew, I'm doing English conferences. And the world I came from, I'd encountered Kevin Prosh in 93. Yes. He had come to Ireland. And someone said to me, you should go down there and get a gig. This guy's good. Uh, it was the same guy that took me in, a guy called Kyle Leach. He took me into um, Virgin Records and introduced me to the manager there. And he was a guy just trying to help me yeah. sell records. And he said, you know, you should go on. This guy's good. I'd never heard of Kevin Prosh. And I came down this Saturday afternoon. And I overheard the conversation between Kevin, his manager, and whoever was organizing the whole thing. And the conversation was, what's he doing here? What's this guy on the guitar doing here? We didn't ask for a guitar player. And I was thinking, it's sounding like I'm about to be asked to leave right mm. now. And um, But everyone in the Christian world, thank goodness, is too nice. And so I was permitted to stay. And uh, no one wanted to break my heart by telling me to get lost. Yeah. And um, for the next, well, it was over four or five days, but for the next four or five days, I was with Kevin as his guitar player. And he said to me, would I like to go on the road with him? Wow. Which, of course, I said, I thought that was my big opportunity. I said, yes. Um, but the main reason I said yes was because I'd been told he was about to be on the road with Van Morrison. So, okay. so I thought all that, that's where that was all going. And next thing, well, it never, like in the music industry, it never happened. Yeah. You know, it, that, that never took place, those things. Um, he went on the road, but I, I wasn't part of it. And um, I resented him a great deal for that for a couple of years. Um, but there was something imparted to me through Kevin that I didn't even realize at the time, but but the, there was a prophetic worship edge that he was traveling the UK and parting in that year and to my knowledge in on the english part of the tour he prophesied over the sound engineer god says you're the radio guy the sound engineer on that tour was martin smith really yes and as far as i'm aware 
I don't know if this is all true, but these are stories I've heard over the years. Kevin stayed with a family somewhere in the Watford area whose 14 year old son was just learning guitar and he prophesied over him, you're going to write songs that go all over the world. That guy was Matt Redman. So you see that year for me, that year that Kevin came, I, I'd never respected or cared about worship music. Um, I seen it as second rate and uncool. And um, I'd even produced records for worship leaders, but none of the music impacted me until that moment. And um, so then that, that kind of, that's what inspired the worship songs, which I wrote. Um, but my main job was being a singer songwriter in the yeah. mainstream. So when Kingsway came along and signed me and gave me a bunch of money and then took me on the road, like the first gig I did in America, I opened for someone I had never heard of. I shared the taxi with this guy as we drove backwards and forwards from the hotel to the venue. And that guy was Chris Tomlin. Oh, we'll see. <laughs> yeah. Well, I didn't know. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. It's just a guy to me. And, um, and on that gig, that gig was in Franklin, Tennessee. I think it was the first ever Worship Together event. I still get emails from people who talk about that gig. And that was 2000. That's 22 years ago. I still get it. Only recently I got an email from a guy who said that gig changed my life. Um, so, you know, for some reason, I'm an accidental worship leader. I kind of fell into it um, purely by accident. And I was rocked by it with Kevin. I was imparted to it. I wept every night that I played with him. And so my idea of worship was and is heaven comes to earth and music is the somehow the vehicle or the catalyst or in some way it creates an atmosphere that God then uses to change yeah. the room. That's what my idea of of leading worship is. It's not playing five songs people know. Um, it's not trying to get people to sing along. I've never cared about stuff like that. I mean, I, I, mean, I recognize there are elements involved in it, but my main thing has been if God doesn't show up, we're wasting our time. Mm -hmm. And I simply don't understand people who lead worship thinking this is my this is going to make me famous or i'm going to make a lot of money or um oh wasn't it good people sang along you know no i'm looking for tongues prophetic singing waves of of healing i'm looking for the kingdom to come and at 18 minutes of worship four and a half songs the eclect track my goodness, it makes me want to scream. I can't believe people would even begin to think that that is authentic or, or flexible enough to allow the Holy Spirit to move. And that was not the atmosphere. And I'm back then, and I'm very, very fortunate that I went to a church. Uh, my wife and I went to that church purely what, in, because... In Raleigh? 
no, sorry, I'm sort of dancing around the timeline <laughs> here somewhat. So this was the early 90s. Right. Um, we went to that church because the church we were going to, the pastor there made it clear. He was a musician. He made it clear I wasn't, you know, it was this tiny and big enough for the both of us kind yeah. of thing. So we went to this other church um, purely because it had great kids work. And my friend, Kyle Leach, he said to me, oh, the worship leader here, he writes songs. He said his songs are going to be all over the world. Well, I showed up to the church. And I heard the guy and I went, Kyle's barking. <laughs> this guy <laughs> is very good. Well, that guy was Robin Mark. Kyle was oh, was it? <laughs> what did I know? It turned out I was judging it by the fact that his guitar only had five strings and was out of tune. I did not understand at that point um, anointing. Wow. And it wasn't until I encountered Kevin, which was a, about a year and a half after that, mm -hmm. that I began to feel, I began to realize that music has a transcendental, transcendental, that's not, that's not the word. I mean, it, ha it has the ability to transcend this realm and connect with that realm. It, it forms a Jacob's ladder between heaven and earth. Yes. And I encountered that with Kevin Prosh. And it made me weep. And it still makes me weep when heaven comes to earth. I'm glad you mentioned Kevin Prosh. Okay. Uh, because he came onto the, uh, my show in, at Crossrooms with uh, Bryn Howarth when they were doing the Final Things of Life mm -hmm. promotion. And I really clicked with Kevin Prosh. Uh, and yeah, I know we have a, uh, an expression of here, you know, he's as mad as a box of frogs. But mm -hmm. in, this, in this case, he carried a little matchstick box. Did you ever see this? Gave him no. And when you opened it, there was a little frog inside. That an was, actual frog? Yeah, an actual dead frog, yeah. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> I wonder why he did that. I don't know. But, that's what, but I would, uh, I'd like to ask you off air, actually, because um, I am trying to get hold of Kevin Prosh, but to no avail, so... I'd love to catch up with him, see what he's doing, what he's been through, his honesty and everything else. So it'd be great to maybe get him on the, the podcast one day soon, if you could help, sir. But uh, go. I'm not, I'm not connected to Kevin at all. Kevin is harder to reach than, um, I don't know. He's harder to reach than President Putin, I would say. Oh, really? Okay. Well, we'll put that out there. For anyone that does listen to this podcast and knows Kevin Prosh, perhaps you can get hold of us, please, at uh, OGC at accessradio.biz. It'd be... It'd be fantastic. Um, so going back, it was a fantastic answer. And uh, I really bought into what you're saying about um, songwriting and things like that. And it's, it really annoys me at times because I see it more as a presentation at times and all these flashing lights. And uh, Don't get me going on that. But what were you doing in Raleigh, North Carolina? <laughs> well, I haven't even got there. No. Um, yeah, so uh, basically the short answer to that is I'd done the Grand Opera House in Belfast and we sold it out. Yeah, he did. Did that two years in a row. That was 2011, 2012. The agent said to me, don't try to do this for the third time because you will lose money. Hmm. He said, I've seen artists do this a hundred times. And again, as my life takes these twists and turns, I'd got a message from someone in America who said, a friend of ours needs picked up from the train, needs a place to stay and needs to get to the airport the next day. Would you please pick this guy up? So I went down, picked the guy up, you know, in doing so, some have entertained angels. So I brought him home. Yeah. 
took him out for a meal that night and breakfast next morning, I think, and ran him to the airport. And he said, thank you very much. If you ever want to apply for American visa, I would like to be your sponsor. Wow. And that guy's name is Paul Coleman, Australian artist, who had played with the Newsboys for a couple yeah. of years. And um, so I took him at his word, got his lawyer, applied for a visa. Uh, next thing I knew, um, I get a U.S. three-year O-1 visa, the right to live and work in the U.S. And with doing the Grand Opera House and not really knowing what to do next, I thought, well, this is an opportunity to reinvent myself in the Christian world. I'll go there. I'll be part of this great church called Catch the Fire in Raleigh. And um, maybe I'll find a new direction. Mm. And so I went there, and from 2012 to 2015, I started off, sorry, 2013, 2015. Um, I started off uh, just going to the church. Me and my wife drove 90 miles every Sunday to go to that church. In a little tiny uh, church where we actually were living in a place called Ashboro, North Carolina, on a Tuesday night, we would go to the local mixed church, mixed race church, white leadership, black congregation. Um, they would have a Tuesday night prayer meeting. And when they found out I had a guitar or I played guitar, they handed me a guitar and said, get up there and sing. Wow. And we were there like two weeks. And I was up there and I was singing. And I hadn't done worship music for years at that point. Mm -hmm. And as I'm playing that thing that was imparted to me 20 years before by Kevin Prosh, I suddenly realized, my goodness, that, that prophetic anointing, that, that's what this is. I'm literally sitting there on the stage thinking, wow. Yeah. Wow, I've just realized Kevin Prosh imparted prophetic worship to me. And the more I did, and the further I went in terms of prophesying, singing the song of the Lord, the more the people in the congregation, black North Carolina people coming from that black church tradition, they're yelling, yeah, man, go, man, go for it, man. Not like Ireland, which would be, uh, your mom's getting a bit above, above his station now. And take <laughs> we'll have to stand him down off the worship team for six months because he thinks he is something, you know. And, and there it's like, dude, you're awesome. Come back next week, you know. And all of a sudden I was, I was back on the horse. And, um, and, the, and the church we went, well, we'd drive up to Raleigh. We, we lived there in Franklinville near Ashboro for six months. Um, people gave us a place to live, gave us a car. And then we rented a house in Raleigh and we moved up there because we were doing more and more stuff with Catch the Fire. And I eventually ended up um, being hired by the church. Not all that, all that was, again, kind of accidental. We got tons of prophetic words about North Carolina. My wife had dreams and um Ray Hughes heard we were going there and he stopped me and said, I welcome you to North America on behalf of, you know, my people. And then a native chief 
heard that I'd moved there and he contacted me, he said, I welcome you to North America on behalf of the first peoples. And wow. like it very much was God directing us there. And it was a, an extremely challenging time. Um, the favorite saying in that church was, you've come here to die. And there were plenty of opportunities to die. Die to your pride, die to your... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Be humbled. Die to self. Yeah, a lot, an yeah. awful lot. Very painful. Oh, tell me about it. Tell me about it. And then other times it was, um, most of the time, it was the most incredibly wonderful. Um, I've never seen a church like that where the pastor would leap out of his chair, punching the air, run across the stage, launch himself off the stage and worship. Wow. I was used to pastors sitting, looking at their Bible yeah, during yeah. worship or on their iPad or bidding on eBay. I mean, <laughs> I was like, I was used to disengaged pastors. I wasn't used to the entire front row leadership team being the most enthusiastic worshipers in the room, right. including the band. And so there was a tremendous liberty in that church and um, no church is perfect, no. but, but boy, do we miss that church and do we miss that leadership? Um, they were wonderful and not perfect people by any stretch, but neither were we. So why come uh, back then if it was going so well? Why, why come back? Um, well, part of it was we realized it wasn't a perfect church. Mm -hmm. And that paradigm shifted. And, you know, there's this phrase, drank the pink Kool-Aid. We had gone to a conference in Sheffield, England, where that church was hosting it. And they had talked about hearing God's voice and living a life of forgiveness and reconciliation. And we thought, what a wonderful church. Um, that's what we want to be part of. And then when you get there and you find out they're just human beings, um, just doing their best and making mistakes. And the, the mistakes knocked me back. Um, but but I coped with that. You know, I, I dealt with the mistakes. And then, um, I, then I got hired on to staff. And then the worship pastor, I was like technical over the PA and lights and all that stuff. And then the girl who was the worship pastor, she quit. And so they gave me her job. So I ended up doing two jobs, both of which I completely swamped myself with. Um, because I just was trying to do too much. Mm. And it wasn't because I was being asked to do too much. I just bit off an awful lot more than I could chew. And actually, I regret that because if I had just taken it at the pace that, for instance, other people who had been in those jobs that my predecessor had taken it at her pace, I might still be there, but I was biting huge chunks out of it. And so I burned myself out. But the key moment was um, a guy showed up to my office one day and he played me a podcast or a TED talk by a girl called Amanda Palmer. And Amanda Palmer was in a band called the Dresden Dolls, um, kind of like punk avant-garde type mm -hmm. band. 
and I watched this TED talk for 20 minutes. And Amanda is famous for getting the biggest GoFundMe or Kickstarter campaign in history. Oh, really? Yeah. $1.2 million. Wow. And, um, but that wasn't what spoke to me. It wasn't about money. What spoke to me was she talked about connection and she talked about sleeping on people's couches. And she talked about building a community of the people who liked her music. Um, and then she talked about doing her launched gig for her funding campaign, where she stripped completely naked on the stage in Berlin and handed out Sharpies to the audience. And they could then draw on her naked body. And You're a Yoko owner, that, in reverse. Is it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I just thought, my goodness, the, the vulnerability and the courage that takes. I wouldn't take my shirt off in front of someone. No. And so to be that vulnerable and to be that committed to and so invested in connecting with people um, and so invested in being an artist to the point of complete and abstract, completely open openness and vulnerability, and I thought to myself, that's my tribe. What am I doing here? Why, why am I working for a church? When, when there's still a part of me loves creativity, loves imagination, loves boundary breaking, loves going beyond. I, the, I mean, I had a similar moment um, probably 10 or 12 years before that, which was whenever I was um, engaged in the the record deal and was touring with Noel Richards and Wayne Drain and I was doing all these massive American churches and we were staying in four star and five star hotels with bathrobes and slippers and yeah. we've had breakfasts and honorariums were wonderful and somebody else paid for the flight, somebody else paid for the taxi. All I got at the end of a tour was a check and a pat in the back and I wasn't really that sure that what I was doing was what I should be doing. Mm-hmm. And I spent a day with Godfrey Bertle. Yes. Um, we went up the North Coast together when he was in Ireland. And he told me his story. And he told me that I think he was in his 50s when he quit his business and went out itinerating. And um, he didn't charge any money. He just took whatever they gave him which anybody who knows, especially the church in the UK, Ireland, UK, you you are going to have some very rough experiences. Mm. If you say to people, give me whatever's on your heart, because some people will give you 20 pounds. Some people will give you nothing. Mm-hmm. My experience is, there's very, very few people who will bless you abundantly. And so for him to go out there and do that and say, I'll just take what I sell in CDs plus whatever you give me, because he wanted to open doors to lead worship and prophesy. Mm-hmm. And his wife stayed home and interceded, and he went out and did his thing. And... 
He slept on people's floors and couches and airport floors. And I felt like such a fraud because I thought, yeah, I thought, because here's this guy completely sold out to ministering as a prophetic worshiper. If ever I seen a person who was 110% authentic, it is Godfrey Burrow. And I felt so convicted that I, I was disillusioned with the American experience. I couldn't understand. I was asking a lot of questions as to what we were doing. No one seemed to have any answers. It would be years before I would get a vision for what I was doing. People without a vision perish. And I had no vision for what I was doing. I was simply going through doors that were opening. Yeah. And actually, so at that point, after talking to Godfrey, I decided to ask Kingsway to release me from the deal. And I decided not to do any worship music anymore. Wow. And I would just go and play bars and clubs. And I ended up sleeping on floors and getting eaten by bugs and um, basically playing every bar and club all over England, Scotland, Ireland, Wales. Lots of very, very rough experiences, lots of amazing experiences. But I felt like I was taking that music where the music needed to be and that that was me being... Yes, it was mainstream, it was bars, it was clubs and, and different things like that, some churches, but mostly um, the mainstream world. And I felt like I was doing what I was called to do. And and it was years and years. It was 2010, the first time I was invited. So from 2003 to 2010, I didn't really lead worship at anything. Um, didn't really want to know about worship. And from 2007 at our church, um, I ran sound for other bands, other worship bands for three and a half years. And I learned more in those three and a half years of running sound. I learned more about worship leading than I'd learned in the previous 10 or 15 years. Such as what? Well, I seen people show up unrehearsed I've seen people show up, not even speak to the sound engineer. Mm-hmm. I had people who literally stood on my fingers as I was trying to plug in my cables. Yeah. And the strange thing was, it was a massively humbling experience because I was on the TV. My Sugar Queen record was getting national reviews in Uncut Magazine. I was on the TV. I was on the radio. I was in the newspapers. But on a Sunday, I was running sound for bands, people who wouldn't even say hello to me. I had a a worship leader scream at me across the green room because I dared to try to sound check the kick drum. And and I've seen people show up with no song list, no plan, knowing there was a curfew. You had to be off stage at nine. They would show up at eight with a 10-piece band to practice not having actually practiced before that. And I'd done all of those things. And I experienced it from the other side. And I, I stood there. I was the guy in the day of the acetates 
there would be 40 acetates sitting on the floor spread out. You couldn't move on the stage. Yeah. Because I was waiting to see which song God was going to tell me to play first. Because I didn't think God could have told me the previous Tuesday. God would only tell me at the last minute. That's a good point. Just a nonsense, you know. If I'd have been plugged in four or five days earlier and actually heard the Holy Spirit, and that would never happen. But I, I thought, I just thought that's what spontaneous spontaneousness equaled. And to me, spontaneity equaled disorganization. Mm. Equaled lack of planning. It, it's like I used to believe that having savings was a sin if I was living in faith. I should spend all my money and have nothing. That was the only way to live in faith. It was childish and immature. I found out the hard way um, after buying an amplifier two weeks before Christmas and then having the worst Christmas of my life with my children. Why? Why? Because I'd blown all my money mm. and thinking that was how you live in faith. Mm -hmm. And I learned, no, it's not a sin to have savings and it's not a sin to keep reserves. And you're still living in faith. You know, I, I just learned by my mistakes and and I, I learned being a sound engineer that it's so important to plan, to communicate, to be organized, to make contingency plans, to have backups, to, you know, to rehearse your band and rehearse your segues and, and rehearse your key changes and get your blinking act together. Mm. And, and I was, it was a massive slice of humble pie for me. I found out later that there'd been a bet and you know, they'd run a sweep on the work on the sound team to see how long I would last. And the, the longest they expected me to last was two months, three and a half years later. I had, I I felt like I'd been on a course on how not to lead worship. Mm. And I took a very, very different approach after that. Well, you mentioned oh. the S you mentioned the S word there, sound desk, but we'll because <laughs> uh, <laughs> I can I can relate to those stories. So from what you've learned so far, okay, mm -hmm. where is where is Brian Houston now in in terms of uh, his faith. Where is Brian Houston now? What is God saying to him? What's going to happen next? Um, that's a great question. Um, I'm actually asking that question myself, I think. Because COVID, I mean, following on from Catch the Fire, when that was over, I resigned from that position. Mm. And my wife and I, thank, thankfully, thanks to Catch the Fires training, I guess, it was on-the-job training, um, I had the courage to go out and start doing ministry without needing Noel and Wayne beside me. I felt like I could just do it. Mm -hmm. Training wheels were off. Next thing, I'm invited to Native American villages, and I'm being adopted by Cree chiefs, and I'm finding out about and the residential schools, and I'm literally traveled coast to coast meeting Native people and doing worship and doing ceremonies and teepees and smoking the peace pipe with the Dakota wow. tribe in Calgary, you know. So God took me on that massive journey into Irishness and into authenticity as, as an Irish person. Yeah. Um, like I remember when I first heard those Native people singing 
and up there in a place called Mistissini, which is basically the, the road stops at Mistissini. After that, you need a plane or a helicopter or an ATV. And um, they were singing songs that sounded like 50s gospel songs, but with Cree language. Mm -hmm. I remember thinking, this is so sad. Where are these people? What is, where's their culture? Culture's been eradicated. Well, I expected to hear native songs, not white man's songs. And the Lord said, son, you're an Irish person. But your music sounds like you come from America. Why, why don't you give me your sound of your land? And I've, I was like gently as he does, because he's so kind. I was gently rebuked and began to realize that God does want to hear the sound of England, the sound of Wales, the sound of Scotland, the sound of Latvia. He wants to hear every tribe and every tongue. He doesn't want to hear us all sound like each other. Mm. Mm. And um, so right now, what I'm doing is I'm making a, a record for native people from America who want me to bring the Irish sound and blend it with the Native American sound. That's what I'm actually working on right now. Um, because of COVID, we haven't toured since 2019. American Peace has expired. I don't know where I'd get the money even to buy another one. <laughs> um, I don't know why I should buy another one. Doors aren't opening. I've not been invited to go anywhere for a long time. And I always took that approach that I wasn't going to go out and promote. I was going to wait for God because everything, like I told you earlier, everything just happened. Yes. I didn't send out press packs and EPKs and all these kind of things. I, it just all happened. It had its own thing. And now my heart would be, Well, here's the thing. I go along to some churches and I see a person lead a very competent worship set. And I hear the bells and the whistles and the constant drone that's running off an app. And I hear people try to play to a click track and I hear formulaic, cookie-cutter songs that'll be exactly the same next week because the back and track dictates mm -hmm. that's all they. And as a person who had something imparted to me, my concern is, ha have I only given over to the next generation a value for excellence and somehow not communicated that excellence is fine. But excellence without the anointing is just excellence. Mm. And you, if you want excellence, go to Glastonbury. You'll get excellence. Yeah. Watch the Jules Holland show. 
you'll get excellence. But I know the difference. Yeah. And the difference is when it's anointed, where does the anointing come from? I'll tell you where it comes from. Being in the low place, being in a small place, being in the hidden place, being in the painful place. When you've been passed over, when there's a big room with a full schedule and everybody gets the lead there with a great PA and monitor engineer and click tracks and backing tracks, and what they're asking you to do is lead the, the children's worship. Brian, are you willing to do that? Mm. I've literally just been asked to do that. Just been asked. Will I please lead the kids' worship? And um, will you? Yes, I will. But I've wrestled with it for two weeks. Because Satan said, this is like asking a racehorse to give donkey rides. Yeah. And he anointed that sentence as soon as it landed in my brain. And it's caused me to wrestle. And it's caused me to weep. And I heard Ray Hughes say the other day, and I sampled it and I put it on this record right away from the small place, from the backside of the desert, from the hidden place. That's where you learn to slay lions and bears. Yeah. That's where you learn how to swing a sling. That's where you learn to be a warrior. Because worse, David was a warrior as well as a worship leader. Mm. And if you want to have anointing, when there's 10 reasons to say no, like you were the last person asked, or you're the last one they want, or they even tell you what songs to sing. When there's 10 reasons to say no, there's no money. The time is short. There's no sound check. There's no sound engineer. There's no bass player. There's no drummer. Whatever the reason, a good reason for you to say, sorry, no. I'm washing my hair. Mm -hmm. And you say yes. You're stepping towards the anointing. The expression that I've used over here, I don't think they understood it, and that is dying to self. Mm -hmm. What do you mean? By, what, well, I know what I mean by that, but what does it mean to you, please? Or your expression that you would use? If you want your life to speak, you've really got to make this decision, okay? I had a worship leader sitting in my house a couple of years ago who had spent 20 years making a fortune from leading worship mm -hmm. all over the world. And they were talking about their life and the gist of it basically was what what have I been doing not me them what have they been doing for those 20 years 
And I, I talked about what we had been doing since the Godfrey Bertel conversation. Yeah, yeah. And he turned to me and he says, Who are you, Jesus? And I thought, Well, as compliments go, that's about as close as it gets. If you had told me in the 90s, Bram, what you're signing up for is a, is a journey that's going to take your heart out of your chest, put it on a table, and beat it with a baseball bat. That you're going to be lied to, lied about, misunderstood, stolen from, cheated, maligned, rejected, mocked, talked about, But you will have a song, and that song, I don't mean a song, I mean the song of your life. And that song will be a sweet incense to me. Mm -hmm. You have to decide, do you want the money? Do you want the fame? Do you want the recognition? Or do you want to understand what it means for fire to fall on sacrifice? Because sacrifice is where the fire falls. And sacrifice involves death. There is no sacrifice without death and there is no inheritance without death. And dying is always painful. It's either painful for you or it's painful for you and the people who lose you. But it will never be easy. But I'm speaking to you right now. If you've made it this far through this podcast, God bless you. But if you want to have any weight in what you do, if you want to see the presence come, if you want to see lives changed and hearts healed and people healed and wheelchairs thrown away and the blind see and the deaf hear, you have to die. And it's as simple as that. And it's not easy. <laughs> the easy part Everybody gets to do the easy part. Yeah. Nobody wants to do the hard part. But you only have to talk to the Helsers and hear that Melissa Helser has an illness that every time she leads worship, she can't walk for days afterwards. Everybody wants I'm no longer slaves and they want the royalty check, but nobody wants the three days of agony after leading worship. But you don't get one without the other. And if you do get the big song and it makes a lot of money and the, there was no anointing on it, it was just a good song, it's there and gone. The reason Amazing Grace is sung hundreds of years after it was written is because lightning struck. Lightning struck that guy. And in one moment, he turned from being a slaver, 
to a freer of slaves. Lightning struck. Everybody wants the thunder. And there's many people out there trying to steal the thunder. Mm-hmm. But they're missing the point. The thunder is the aftermath. It's just the echo of the lightning. And if there's no lightning, then there's no fire. I'm terrified that I passed that on, that I all I passed on to that generation was excellence. When what they really needed to hear is it's about dying. Yeah. Didn't Jesus show us that? There's no greater love that a man has than to lay down his life for his brother. Yeah. What comes to mind from your incredible honesty and uh, I was I have to say I was weeping too when you when you were because obviously we can see each other on webcams but this is going out as audio I was um, I was weeping too those that are listening in a similar position at the moment who might be scared or might be going through it in closing before we get to the final question encourage them what would you say Brian well Put on the spot there. I would just say that, you know, it doesn't really matter that you don't have to sweat it. You don't have to worry that no one's singing your song or no one's recognizing you. If you let him lead, he will exalt you. If you die to yourself and you humble yourself, he will exalt you. Not in the way that you think. My goodness, not in the way that I think. Mm. One of the greatest moments I've ever seen was a little town called Lively in Ontario. Teaching these two wee girls on a Thursday rehearsal. I was playing there on the Saturday. Two girls, maybe teenagers, 15, trying to tell them about the song of the Lord. They're looking at me as if I'm crazy. On the Saturday night, by the end of that worship, they were singing the song of the Lord. And I thought, job done. There's about 30 people there. Mm. I played a, a stadium. Paul Oakley was playing next door. British Columbia University. 900 people were turned away from Paul Oakley. I was playing in a three and a half thousand seater venue. Those 900 people went right past the door and I played to 11 people. I got down off the stage and asked them to come forward. They sat in the front row and I told my story. Eight years later, after feeling so humiliated and feeling so embarrassed, by that experience, I bumped into the promoter. He told me he'd been in Dominican Republic. He bumped into a guy who told him he was there to help Compassion because his life had been changed. At a gig eight years before, where an Irish guy sang to 10 other people in him. Wow. It's, it's always for the one. 
he leaves the 99 and he calls after the one. Yeah. That's, that's all you can do. Just go where he leads you and dare to yourself. And if you can do that, for I'll fall on that sacrifice and life will grow from the seed that you plant. And you may not even see it. Yeah. But your kids will hear about it. And they may never see it, or you may not have any children. But your name will be well known in heaven. Yeah. And God will boast about you. Yeah. God will say, that's my beloved one. And after all, what the heck are we doing this for? It's always been for him. And if it's not for him, it's not anything. No. Brian, it's been incredible what you've been sharing. I said right at the beginning, we'd, be, you, we'd go off on different tangent. I never thought we'd go this far. Thank you mm. for your honesty. Thank you for openness. Who's your Christian hero, sir? Without a doubt, it's Kevin Prosh. I'll tell you why. Yeah, he asked me to play guitar and then he didn't follow through. It took me a couple of years to forgive him, but I eventually got over myself. And then in 1998, he came back to Belfast. And I was opening for him. By then, I was all over the newspapers and on TV. And yeah. he was the worship leader, but I got up and I did my singer-songwriter stuff. And cried were, you know, homeboy in front of a nice crowd in the Elmwood Hall. Just good, good night. Kevin came out, did his thing, place blew up, was going crazy. And when he finished, the crowd were yelling for more. And he came out and he said, I'll do one more, but only if Brian Houston does one more. And then he could have played, show your power, banner over me, God is speaking through the music. He could have played a cover of some massive worship song and I couldn't have followed it. But he played the most depressing, dirge-like, mournful, introspective piece you've ever heard. And then I got up there and like putting on Saul's armor, I strapped his guitar around my neck and the strap was too long and the sound didn't suit me and I started to play Amazing Grace. I was so scared I had my eyes closed. And then I heard a rattle and I heard noises around me. I eventually opened my eyes. And one by one, this whole band. They all got up, joined in. Next thing, he plugged in a guitar played an incredible solo and sang harmony on the last verse. He prostrated himself with that song before me. And then he brought his minstrels on the stage to exalt me and to prefer me and to honor me. Yeah. Probably Maybe in, in the top two moments, maybe even the top, the most 
incredible music experience, worship experience I've ever had. But it was a lesson in how to be a father. And he showed me that. And it's a shame, shortly after that, his whole life fell apart. Yeah. And that's, it's a shame that we at church don't know how to embrace the fallen and the broken. So ironic, since we talk about a saviour who embraces the fallen and the broken. And yet we don't do the same thing. And do you know what? I'm going to allow this. This is, <laughs> is uh, here's, here's the thing, because I said that they have to be dead. But for those that don't know about Kevin Prosh, you say he, he fell and he, he did. He, he admitted to having adultery whilst on tour, I think it was, wasn't it? And, and, and that's why I would love, to, as I said earlier in the podcast, um, I would love to interview Kevin Prosh because um, I think, you know, we can learn so much from that. He was put on a pedestal, came down. I mean, what what would you say about the past 20 years for Kevin Prosh and what it's meant to you? Um, I wish I'd had him to ask for why I was doing this. I'm sitting here. I could show you in the corner over there are, is a box, a white box with five cassette tapes, which are teachings on worship from Kevin Prosh. Um. I wish he was a resource to the church today. I'm sorry that he lives like a almost I don't know recluse almost. Mm. Um, but he showed me. He showed me what the worship was, what real worship was, what spirit and truth was, what the anointing felt like. He imparted to me what would become a blueprint for my worship leading style and for my life. And he even imparted to me, and he prophesied through actions what would make me weep 25 years later when I seen young girls embrace the anointing. Mm. He showed me, I seen a nine-year-old learn how to play the worship calls and the, the battle calls on a shofar. I seen her play that in North Bay, Ontario. And I seen a room explode as the anointing fell on a nine-year-old as she blew the shofar. Mm. I wouldn't have recognized any of that if I hadn't seen what Kevin did. If I hadn't sat under his very, very brief tutoring. And I wouldn't have understood how important it was to give that child space. She said to me, when do you want me to play? She played it in the sound check. When do you want me to play? I said, play when you feel the Holy Spirit tells you to. And she got up and she did. And boy, was she hearing God's voice. And I wouldn't have known any of that if he showed me what that looks like and taught me what it feels like. So when you heard about Kevin and what happened, how did that affect you? I was heartbroken, you know. I was heartbroken. I feel really bad for his wife and really sorry that their marriage fell apart. Really sorry 
I've heard rumors about him since and from very influential, powerful people. And I went and checked out those rumors and ended up going back to those powerful people and saying, actually, that's not true what you told me. So I've tried to honor him. You know, Noah's kids didn't cover his nakedness. Mm -hmm. When it comes to the sins of other people, I think our job is to cover them, not to exploit them. And uh, I just wish we'd done a better job of teaching many generations over the years that grace has no limits and that we live in the benefit of that and yeah. the very we should try to offer that to each other. Because that's what I'm trying to get my brain around. You know, you've mentioned King David. People will rattle off any psalm, you know, the favourite psalm. They will say what it is, but you know, when compared to what all of us have done, you know, and compared to what David has done, it, it's just it's like what you know. We should be able to show grace, as you say. But don't you think that that's God's point? Moses was a murderer. Who was 80. So so why are we saying to people they're too old when they're 25? Yeah. Why are we saying to worship leaders you're too old if you're 31 when God said 80 is when you're wise enough to get started? Yeah. Well, why? Why do we do this? Why don't we just look at his example and see the number of people he used? Peter cuts off people's ears and denies Jesus. If that guy went to a church today, he'd be disciplined at the very least or asked to leave. Sorry, we don't have any ear cutters around here and we certainly don't take any deniers of Jesus. You know, you deny Jesus, that's it, you're done. No, we, we, that's what we do. What does he do? Upon this rock, I will build my church. Your name's not Simon anymore. Your name is Rock. You see, that's the thing. He always showed us, even his death was a demonstration of love and a prophetic word to the church. Greater love is no man than to lay down his life and to pour out his heart and to become a sacrifice, whatever that is. And if that means forgiving the person, yeah, my dad cheated on my mom. When Kevin cheated on his wife, it hurt me. Mm. Kevin asked me to play guitar with him and didn't follow through. That hurt me. That really hurt me. But I forgive him. And I love him. And I cherish him to this day. And I appreciate him. And me, being evil, know how to do that. How much more does my Father in heaven love him, cherish him? So that's who we got to be, bro. And that's the life we're called to, whether we 
The mission should you choose to accept it. Yes, exactly. Self-destruct in 10 seconds. Yeah. Nine. It. So, <laughs> you know, mission impossible. That's what we're called yeah. to. Yeah. Brian, wow. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a, a real privilege and, uh, yeah, for being just open and honest. It's It's been a, a real privilege. Thank you so much. You're very welcome.